Welcome to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, a brilliant guest expert helps us tell new stories about old and sometimes odd media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is Sarah Marty, director of the Bolt Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Sarah once worked as a stitcher and on the wardrobe crew for the Wisconsin Shakespeare Festival, and she sewed matching wedding dresses for Rosalind and Celia. My co-host is Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. Josh regularly teaches the large Shakespeare lecture at UW-Madison. However, he has a complicated relationship with the sonnets. He likes some, dislikes even more, but he loves a few. Today we speak with Dr. Gregory Mackey. Greg is an associate professor in the Department of English, Language, and Literatures at the University of British Columbia, and he's the Norman Colbeck Curator in UBC Libraries, Rare Books, and Special Collections Division. The plan was to talk with Greg about UBC's recent acquisition of one of the approximately 250 surviving original copies of Shakespeare's first folio. Our listeners may know this, but the first folio, published in 1623, was the first collected volume of Shakespeare's plays. Without this volume, some of Shakespeare's most popular plays, like Macbeth, Julius Caesar, and As You Like It, might have been lost. So on the cusp of the 400th anniversary of the printing of this important book, we wanted to talk to Greg about collecting Shakespeare, about why you should spend money on a book that anyone can look at online, and about, well, what makes the Shakespeare archive special? Right, so supposedly this is an episode about Shakespeare and the first folio. But as I was re-listening to our ranging conversation, I gave this episode an alternate title. Shakespeare and Penguins and Oscar <laughs> Wilde and Forgeries and Gay Pamphlets. Oh my. And don't forget the saga of working with Christie's Auction House to find and secure a folio for the UBC. What we explore in this episode is the idea that a Shakespeare archive is a fantasy. And that's what makes it special. Shakespeare is a gateway. His name draws in audiences like you, dear listener, who probably came here to hear about Shakespeare, but will soon be learning about queer archives in Canada, and Antarctic exploration, and hypothetical library arson, and hyphenated aristocrats who sound like Oscar Wilde characters, but are actually George Bernard Shaw's neighbor. <laughs> I'm uh, thinking about that moment, about halfway through our conversation with Greg, where we talked about literary forgeries and mm-hmm. how they reveal a culture's fantasies, how they recreate and reanimate the original author and their legacy. Exactly. Much like a Shakespeare forgery, a Shakespeare archive is also a kind of cultural fantasy, maybe even a kind of fan fiction that attempts to keep focus on a single author, but always kaleidoscopes, revealing a much greater variety of cultural contributors than we might expect. What emerged kind of unexpectedly was this bigger question around value. With many of our guests, we've gotten to the details of how you preserve objects, you know, the climate control, the shelving, the categorization. And there's some of that here, but the real question here is why? Yeah, and, and at whose expense? It's not just the dollar value, but what book objects mean to an institution or an individual, or what else a book makes possible? It's a complicated set of questions, so it was fascinating to hear Greg's perspective. 
It was. And it was such a lively conversation. <laughs> Greg is a great storyteller on top of being an amazing researcher, teacher, and curator. This one was especially fun. We've, we've been so lucky to have so many interesting and generous guests this season. I sort of feel that after every conversation we have. Um, but where this conversation stood out uh, to me was its focus on a singular object as I think about like the whole season. H how do you think, uh, Sarah, that it fits within our broader season? Well, thinking about Susan Ackbury in the personal library episode, it struck me in Greg's case, even when thinking about this famous book, this first folio and all its cultural weight, there still needs to be this personal, individual mm -hmm. passion behind it. You know, this particular folio didn't just magically appear in the UBC library. It has this long history of people dedicated to preserving and collecting and, and sharing it. And Greg is now part of that story. Yeah. I found myself thinking back to our conversation with uh, Dasha Kelly Hamilton, where she talked about kind of puncturing this tradition of great canonical work. I think Greg would agree with much of what she said, but also he suggests this third path, maybe where canonical writers and important cultural heritage objects must share space in archives and in our cultural conversations about Shakespeare and the first folio with new and different and unexpected objects and ideas. It's so satisfying to see how these conversations continue to weave together. Let's get to this one with Greg Mackey. Will already introduced the idea of Shakespeare's first folio, but what is your first folio? What's special or unique about it? Oh, a lot of things. How we got it is an interesting story. Um, numerically, and in terms of, uh, you know, how Shakespeare censuses work, it's important insofar as it's now, we've doubled the tally in Canada. It's only the second copy in Canada. Uh, so there are many, um, many angles of, of, you know, entry points, I guess, for, for people's fascination. Can I ask about the penguin entry point? <laughs> this was, <laughs> I was... Uh, you know, part of the, our conversation, you promised penguins and I just, I'm ready for the, I want to know, like, how, how are penguins related to this folio? You're going big right away, right okay. away with the penguins. Right away with the penguins. Um, we were going to do actually <laughs> the exhibition that's just about to close. Um, we were at one point thinking about putting a stuffed, a stuffed emperor penguin in the <laughs> exhibition, but that uh, unfortunately didn't, didn't quite work. Out, but, um, you know, one of the book's former owners um, is an extraordinary person. His name is Apsley Cherry Garrard. Mm -hmm. and he's Already extraordinary with that name. British aristocratic names, <laughs> just, you know, amazing. And, and he was um, an Antarctic explorer. He was part of the Scott Terra Nova expedition um, that went to Antarctica in 1910, 1913. Uh, he was the youngest member of the expedition, and mm -hmm. he was one of that generation that couldn't do enough heroic things. Um, and so right after his horribly traumatizing trip to Antarctica, and I'll tell about that in a moment, um, he went off and fought in the First World War, uh, as one did. Oh my gosh. Uh, wow. Later on in life, um, he, um, he acquired uh, this, this copy, this, this folio. Okay. Um, and so it's been known to the um, Shakespeare census folks as uh, the absolutely cherry Garrard copy. Okay. Um, a, wow. a lot of folios uh, have um, are yeah. known yeah. for their, their prior owners, right? And they're associated with them. Mm -hmm. but, uh, he, so he was in his early 20s, um, very poor eyesight, but managed to convince Scott to uh, take him on as a, a junior biologist or something like that. Um, he ended up editing the South Polar Times, the um, 
unique produ uniquely produced um, uh, little newspaper that the exhibition uh, the expedition did. But famously, he and two of his colleagues crossed the Antarctic Peninsula in uh, the polar winter, so all night, always wow. night, um, to to get emperor penguin eggs to collect them for the Natural History Museum in London. And oh my goodness! There. However, the journey was so so horrendous um, that his teeth chattered to the point where they were uh, brittle little stubs, because Whoa. he almost died many times. <gasps> And when he got back um, to um, England, to his country house, um, his neighbor, um, who, was also, who was also a writer, um, his neighbor was, by the way, called George Bernard Shaw, told <laughs> Gerard, oh, this, no way. <laughs> this is what you should call your memoir. So he wrote this, this two-volume memoir, published in 1922, called The Worst Journey in the World, um, <laughs> about that very experience of crossing the Antarctic Peninsula to get to the, Ante the, the emperor penguin eggs. So he's very associated with the natural history of the penguin. Mm -hmm. So, and, and he did get the eggs. He brought eggs. He brought them back intact. And are and they still wow. in there? They are still there in that extraordinary museum in, in uh, South Kensington, yes. So there's this connection between uh, your folio there in Vancouver and these emperor penguin eggs in London. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And this book is what's called a sophisticated copy. Mm -hmm. So it also speaks to collecting culture at the turn of the 19th century. What these aristocrats would often do is they'd try to make books that were imperfect, perfect uh, with scare quotes um, by, uh, by patching in bits and pieces that, that had were damaged or, or went missing. And this is exactly what happened. Um, with this with this copy. So it has one leaf from a different um, uh, a different edition of uh, of the collected works of Shakespeare, the 1632 second folio okay. bound mm. with it, which is not original. But of course, this makes the book so much more interesting yeah. and exciting to scholars. Um, less interesting to purist collectors, perhaps, who might mm -hmm. want to have an absolutely, um, you know, untouched, perfect, uh, uh, pristine copy. Um, but, you know, for, for my purposes and for our purposes as an institutional um, custodian of this book, um, the checkered history is much more interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and there were other uh, leaves uh, sewn in, tipped in at, at the point of binding. Yep. It was a beautiful binding, by the way. Just looking you, at it, yeah. but, um, uh, I hope our listeners will take a, take a chance to click on the links and go look at it. But then there's, there's a lot of handwriting I, I thought I saw. What, what's all that? It's got a whole archive. The book has a whole archive relating to its provenance that is tipped mm. um, into the, the first uh, couple of uh, uh, paste down fly leaves, the earliest, uh, the earliest pages uh, that you would see when you open the cover of the book and some beautiful book plates um, of former owners uh, of the book. So one of the things that the book, one of the things you can do with a book like this is, um, and I don't, you know, I'm using this flippantly, but it's also true, is time travel. Mm -hmm. right? The book mm -hmm. takes you through time um, to the various people who have handled it and owned it and preserved it or mistreated it um, yeah, over, over, you know, the centuries. And it's, you know, it's on the cusp of being 400 years old now. Yeah. So um, one of the things that you shared with us before our, today was this article about the acquisition of your folio, which we'll put on the show notes, of course, for this episode. And um, uh, Calhoun noticed that there were 
a lot of questions in the comments. There were like 82 of them yeah. as of today. And one of the things, you know, I work in the arts, so I'm used, I see these questions a lot. Um, people are interested in the financial side. They're wondering yeah. or worried about um, taxpayer funds or resources yep. that conceivably could have gone elsewhere. But I, I know, and, and you know, that's, that's not quite the story. So can you talk a little bit about the fundraising process and what it really takes to make this kind of thing happen? It's not at all the story. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and people do jump to that conclusion, uh, perhaps understandably, when a public mm -hmm. institution like my university mm -hmm. acquires a book like this. But public funds didn't go, um, university funds didn't go into it. We mm -hmm. did get a substantial grant from the Canadian federal government, from the um, Movable Cultural Property um, uh, Fund of a half mm -hmm. a million Canadian dollars uh, to, towards the acquisition. Um, but the university didn't, it's not a zero sum situation where the university mm -hmm. spent money that could have been used elsewhere on yeah. buying this, um, mm -hmm. this, this book. It's not, it's not a kind of trophy in that way. Yeah. Um, I'd heard about, um, uh, a copy, uh, a folio coming up for auction when I was at the California Antiquarian Book Fair, um, in, uh, February, 2020. So I was in Pasadena right before. Mm. The oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but we got to walk around and I got to meet a lot of people and there was a lot of chit chatting. And I learned that, that, that you know, that it was going to be um, uh, a co that Mills College in uh, Oakland, California, was mm -hmm. was uh, in financial dire straits and were thinking and going to auction their um, their first folio. And so I thought, I guess, with a little bit of mercenary <laughs> intent, woman <laughs> said, "Well, you know, this this doesn't happen very often, right? There hadn't been a full mm -hmm. auction for twenty years." So we we got in touch with Christie's, and we started to build um, uh, we started to build proposals and to get in touch with potential donors. <clears throat> Um, but the auction get, kept getting pushed back, um, but we weren't able to actually mount a bid. Um, the auction eventually happened in October 2020, and that copy sold for um, just under 10 million US, which set mm. a record. Now, um, shortly thereafter, this, one of the strange things happened. Um, <laughs> you know, Catherine and I were sort of licking our wounds and thinking, well, you know, I guess this was too ambitious because a lot of people said, oh, you couldn't possibly, you couldn't possibly do this. This is, then Christie's came back to us. Christie's New York, oh. and Christina Geiger, head of Rare Books, um, mm -hmm. really uh, fantastic uh, person, uh, working with Christie's and Christie's helped us do the fundraising. And this was essential. Mm. Um, we could not have done it without um, uh, their connections and network. Uh, and uh, patience and encouragement. And so we worked, mm -hmm. we worked together. Uh, we had endless Zoom meetings, um, uh, you know, nudging here, pushing there. Um, it, it, was, it was a long haul, but eventually in the middle of um, the cataclysmic uh, <laughs> heat dome <laughs> Northwest in uh, June, 2021, mm -hmm. we learned that our final bid had been uh, successful. Um, we never, we don't know who the owner was. Um, the owner's oh, wow. Agency, so this is, you know, property of a gentleman, as it were. The owner was a mm -hmm. private collector in the United States um, who wished to remain anonymous to us. Um, Christie's, of course, knows, but they're bound by confidentiality. Your collections um, uh, there at UBC, you you have a second folio you, you mm -hmm. um, that you've had for for quite a while, mm -hmm. and and now you had this first folio. And I wonder what is 
the value to, to your collections of adding a first folio to your Shakespeare archive? What does it um, allow you to do when you think not just about a first folio as a book, but a, a sort of a Shakespeare archive that you have there? We, we have um, a quite, a, I would say, a very respectable collection of early modern um, uh, English uh, books mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there is, you know, there's a certain amount of fit with a lot of the other collections that the university's had, including yeah. a second folio for quite some time. Um, but the thing about this, co- this book, um, I think it has a kind of talismanic power that's unlike other, um, mm. other books. Yeah. It goes yeah. far beyond, um, you know, even it's, even it's, it, it is greater than the sum of its parts, greater than the yeah. aggregate contents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, uh, you know, generating wonder and the desire to know and the desire to experience mm. something that is aesthetically transformative, that's the best you can get. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the absolute pinnacle of what the profession for me is about. And this book does that. This book encapsulates that experience. Um, yeah. Also, and I think another thing that's going on that I shouldn't um, uh, neglect uh, to mention is there's a quite a robust um, digital component to um, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. happened with this book. Um, so we've also worked, that's Catherine and I, the library have also been working with colleagues in uh, the theater department who are cross-listed with the Center for Digital Media here. But our colleagues um, have uh, have been, you know, pursuing other kinds of uh, grants, some of them successful, mm-hmm. to, um, to digitize the book in 3D Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with mm-hmm. a process called photogrammetry. Um, and then pivoting from that, they're also going to think about ways to use those uh, digital assets um, to combine with um, um, all augmented reality um, software so that people can actually experience Shakespeare. Um, the text will be transformed, right? They experience the text in a completely different way. Um, one thing that we'll have um, is a really, fe- ultimately, is a, is a really effective, useful digital surrogate for the book. Um, because, of course, mm-hmm. balancing uh, preservation and access is always going to be the, uh, the dilemma with an object like this. Um, it is 400 years old, um, mm-hmm. it is extremely valuable, both in um, material and in other terms, right? <clears throat> Uh, and we absolutely, you know, it's not going to work for everybody who wants to see it and page through it to be able to do that. That's the idea. Well, it sounds like this is getting to, it's something that you are, you and I have talked about, you're concerned with this equitable distribution, um, being able to yeah. uh, make these things accessible. And of course, one, you know, one question is, well, you know, you you get this and now it goes into an archive and who can touch it? Only, only, only a few, you know, get mm. to actually turn the pages, but. It, absolutely. It's definitely a both end instead of an either or. <laughs> Here we are again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely that. Uh, and, you know, students uh, and uh, scholars will certainly have um, an opportunity to, um, there will be opportunities to touch it. Um, but one of the things this book has produced is, you know, some, some, I wouldn't say growing pains is perhaps too strong, but, you know, we, we've had to figure out how to, how to put together the kinds of protocols um, that mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, even in terms of security, right? We have great yes. security, but, but we want to make sure that, um, that, you know, this is, this is, you know, a un- the university's asset now and it's, uh, we're, we see ourselves as custodians, right? Of, mm-hmm. of, a, of, of a public asset. I was reading about your book, Beautiful, Unique Things, Forging Oscar Wilde's Extraordinary Afterlife. 
and the lost archive of wild forgeries that flooded the book market in 1920s, which I think is just a fascinating story. Can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you to that project? It was, a, I guess, a kind of a process of literary detective work um, in trying to track down what was actually going on when, um, for a brief period in, you know, the around the turn of the 1920s, when it peaked, Wilde was one of the, Oscar Wilde, who had died in 1900, was one of the most forged writers around. So their mm -hmm. book pursues a bunch of different case studies of uh, forgers who who sort of recreated and reanimated Oscar Wilde according mm. to their own um, their own investment in his 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 notoriety and his legacy. Uh, none of them made a lot of money. Um, so although <laughs> some of this stuff was certainly exploited and have been you know vaguely well not vaguely criminal, um, it wasn't about that really. Uh, it, it didn't end up being successfully that way. Uh, successful in 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 a, in a in a criminal sense, but um, the other wonderful irony or or sort of theoretical angle is that Wilde himself was a theorist of forgery, and mm. theorized all creativity as um, and all art as the creation of beautiful untrue things. Mm. Uh, so forgery is the ultimate example for him, <laughs> the ultimate instantiation of creativity. Um, it's not about originality, but it's rather mm -hmm. the act of being an original uh, that he valorizes. And so for somebody who theorizes forgery to become its object um, was also uh, just, you know, too delicious to avoid. So it took me you know, <laughs> many rabbit holes. And, um, you're making me think of of uh, William Ireland's uh, oh, forgery, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Vortigern, right? <laughs> which, which is, as you say, you said pastiche. I mean, it's it's as I like to say uh, to my students, it's sort of like he he had all the ingredients, but all the wrong proportions, and. Yes. <laughs> And, it, and it's, like you know, and so it just, it, right. And it, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it tastes like your cooking, but I, <laughs> it does, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, no, it's just, it's amazing to think about this, but so actually when we think about forgeries that there's this attitude towards like, well, um, that's just a forgery. It's a fake. Right. Mm -hmm. But in an archival sense, these things are incredibly, incredibly valuable, right? Incredibly valuable because what they do is they reveal, uh, the a culture's fantasies and the culture's huh. desires. Mm -hmm. Right. That's beautifully put. Um, yeah. They, they want um, the forgery is about um, a, a it's about a, a particular orientation towards the past, and about a desire for the past to have been a certain way that was not, mm -hmm. um, and to bring that into material reality by mm -hmm. um, producing the evidence of that of that past that doesn't actually you know that never actually happened. So, I'm wondering if you just for our listeners at home might. Yeah. In a quick summary, just share what is the Queer Collections Project? So it's an initiative um, uh, that um, my colleague Kyle Frockman, who's in the, um, he's a Germanist, but he's in, in our Central Eastern mm -hmm. European Studies Department, uh, um, that he and I uh, started uh, at the library to, um, to make um, collecting historical material about his sexual minorities part of the collections mandate uh, for the Rare Books and Special Collections at UBC. Mm -hmm. Because I was I was sharing with with Sarah this video 
um, mm-hmm. that I came. I mean, there was a, an article about uh, the exhibition that you co-curated in 2019 uh, called "A Queer Century: 1869 to 1969." Mm-hmm. And uh, in in the uh, video with the collection, you showed your favorite item. And it was so it was really uh, it was beautiful. I loved your description of it. You uh, showed this cheap, uh, bright yellow <laughs> pamphlet uh, called "A Guide for the Naive <laughs> Homosexual." Yeah. You, you said, and I, I wrote down. You said uh, it has. Uh, a, a camp gay sense of humor, but it okay. also offers practical advice mm-hmm. where to go. And I'm quoting you where to go, where to meet people, how to avoid homophobic harassment. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's a kind of zany question, a thought experiment I'm going to put to you. Yeah. If, if that was the only, because that sounds like such an amazing book, but a very cheap book, right? If yeah. that was the only surviving copy of a guide for the naive homosexual and if heaven forfend, the archives were burning and you could only pick one. Would you grab the pamphlet or the folio? And why? Oh, I'd grab the folio. Okay. I, I would grab it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, 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 would, I, would, I would have to do triage on the basis of what matters most to the most people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would, be, it would actually be a very kind of, you know, utilitarian calculation, I guess. Um, uh, I don't, I, I think those pamphlets probably got around though. I don't know. I, I might want I don't think it's the only copy. Yeah. yeah I want to, <laughs> but same with the folio, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but no, that book, that book is, you know, my other, the booklet, the other thing about that, that I, that I joke about is that I wish I had that myself when I was 18. Um, because mm-hmm. it, was, <laughs> it, also, it also, it also, it's a time machine, right? It's, it's, it was yeah. published in the, uh, I think about 1971 yeah. and speaks to this moment. It's a, it's a local production speaks to this moment where, you know, Vancouver very much was, um, uh, sort of, uh, an important historical site in the, mm-hmm. sort of the moment of gay liberation. Um, it was the San Francisco of Canada. Um, it was still yeah, yeah. affordable to live here, unlike it is today. You know, what you could use, but but, yeah, yeah. but the, book, the, the book is um, you know it's 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 fun and it's a wonderful historical artifact um, that speaks very much to that little tranche of time in the early 1970s. But it doesn't have the. I mean, it, it's 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 very local and very specific, right? It doesn't have the kind of the kind of resonance for for people. Uh, for for a greater number of people that, that the folio does, and yeah. that's been one of the great things about the exhibition that we've had about the folio was was the you know tens of thousands of people got to see it that wouldn't otherwise see it. Um, my exhibitions yeah, yeah. on the queer collections project um, at we're at the library we're, we're at UBC, and um, uh, we did get a lot of people, but not not those not the same kinds of numbers uh, to see the material um, that we've assembled uh, for for that exhibition. So are there ways in which some of the things you're developing to make your folio accessible could be applied to other aspects of your archives, like the Queer Collections Project, to bring those materials to a greater audience? I would love to be able to do that. Um, but I, I think, uh, had we a world enough in time, uh, there are always substantial um, substantial barriers in terms of person hours uh, and uh, personnel to do these things. You know, there, there aren't enough. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's, I would love to be able to make that happen, um, but I don't know if it's uh, practicable or, or necessarily um, realistic. Um, but we want to raise the profile of the collecting mandate to make sure that people know that this material is here and we continue to, um, uh, to, to acquire it uh, and, and to preserve it. 
Uh, and yes, into, into the future, um, doing something digital, doing something that is that has a, a much more public-facing uh, remit, I think, would be certainly something that I'd look forward to do with Queer Collections as well. Yeah. Thank you to our guest, Greg Mackey. As always, listeners, you can find more from these conversations in our episode guides, which contain links, citations, images, and more rabbit holes you can fall down. Find a link to this episode guide in the show notes or on holdinghistory.org. Each episode ends with the bookish word, where student curators tell the story of a weird word from the history of books and media. Hold on to your text. This week's bookish (laughs) word is biblioclept. My bookish word is biblioclept, and it's derived from the Greek words biblio, meaning book, and kleptos, meaning thief. If you were to think of planning a heist, I doubt you would think of stealing books, but back in the 19th century, this was an offense punishable to the nth degree. This word was coined in 1880 and dates back to the beginning of libraries when books were rare and a much greater temptation. Books are one thing that I think people really take for granted. Reading and literacy are a privilege and not something that was permitted in the 16th century in Great Britain. In 1559, the Catholic Church banned several books to prevent the contamination of faith and the corruption of people's morals. They wanted to exercise their power to be able to control what people learn and read to ensure that people did not disagree with the ideologies of Catholicism or the Church. For several centuries, punishment for stealing books resulted in imprisonment or even banishment from the country. One of the greatest book thieves was Dr. Pickler, and he committed the largest theft of books on record from a European library. He was caught in 1871 with about 4,000 volumes and was later exiled to Siberia. Honestly, the chances that someone would walk into the college library and steal books is pretty low nowadays, but copyright infringement and plagiarism are the modern versions of book stealing. This can be done in essays or even by pirating movies to make a profit off of an unoriginal idea. Despite the fact that most used books are scribbled in or annotated, it's essential to remember that reading is a freedom that's priceless and allows for the acquirement of a greater understanding of the world. Without reading, we'd be lost as a society and too trusting of the people in power that are permitted to read. Reading not only avoids repeating history, but it's essential to developing the skepticism and intellect necessary for success and prosperity in the future. That's the end of this chapter. I'm Joshua Calhoun. And I'm Sarah Marty. Our theme music is by Luke Levitt, and our associate producer is Tom Van Camp, whose spirit Shakespearean character is Hamlet because he owns a worm farm. Our in-house barista is Arden Calhoun, whose name has nothing to do with As You Like It or her father's Shakespearean proclivities. The bookish word was conceived, created, and recorded by Ainsley Scomel. Support for this podcast was provided by a University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant, Friends of the UW-Madison Libraries, the UW-Madison Center for the Humanities, and Humanities Without Walls. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org. 